January 1969 was positively balmy by comparison with the winters of the early 1960s. Seven years earlier, on New Year's Day 1962, at 11am, Brian Epstein and the Beatles made their way in the face of, as Brian puts it, a thin bleak wind with snow and ice afoot. From their hotel in Russell Square to 165 Broadhurst Gardens, West Hampstead, Decker Studios. The Beatles had travelled 10 hours from Liverpool to London through snowstorms and across perilous black ice on the A roads of pre-motorway Britain. John, Paul, George and drummer Pete Best arrived on New Year's Eve and briefly explored London's West End. Here George spotted and was immediately impressed by Cuban-heeled elastic-sided boots in the shop Anello and Davide. Here they found a pub by Trafalgar Square and saw in the new year over a pint of beer before sensibly retiring to the Royal, their less than luxurious hotel, to sleep, knowing that they had a big day ahead. In the square we joined in the singing of old Lang Syne, kissed a few willing lips but we didn't exactly let ourselves rip. We didn't even dip as much as a finger in the icy waters of the fountains where the usual brave hearts were trying to catch pneumonia. The implications of the audition were uppermost in our minds. At last, the big time was beckoning. Mike Smith, the A&R manager, arrived late, much to Brian's consternation. Not only because we were anxious to tape, but because we were being treated as people who didn't matter. But technicians in lab coats were on hand to help them set up in Studio 2. This room where Lonnie Donegan had recorded Rock Island Line and started British rock and roll in earnest. The first issue of the day, the Beatles rode battered amplifiers. Decker had a proud tradition of building or modifying their own equipment. There was a Decker way and a Decker sound and nothing less was acceptable. The technicians insisted the Beatles plug their guitars into the studio's own amplifiers, a move that immediately unnerved the three guitarists. Pete was placed behind a large baffle and the singers in the band were asked to enunciate clearly into the giant condenser mics placed in front of them. Studio 2 was wide but not very deep. The singers stood virtually face to face with the sound engineers on the other side of a large letterbox shaped glass partition. Mike Smith arrived groggy from the previous night's celebrations and sat stone faced as John gave a nod to Paul and started the opening riff to Barrett Strong's Money, That's What I Want. Through the tinny amp in the dead acoustic space, everything sounded too quiet. As the opening chord sequence resolved itself, John leaned into the mic and in a quivering, almost timid voice, squeezed out the notes of the first line. The best things in life are free. His chest became tighter and he struggled to breathe, forcing the elongated, that's what I want, line out until his voice broke. It wasn't the barnstorming, knock-out-the-ballpark showstopper they'd hoped for, but John's nervousness needn't be a problem. He had only nominated himself to sing four songs. Paul, on the other hand, had drawn the short straw with seven. Once again, when Paul opened his mouth to sing, a croaky, tremulous tone slipped past his lips. He too couldn't seem to summon up the power of his stage performances. To reach the crescendo of Till There Was You, his high notes turned into a wobbly falsetto. Leaning into the mic to clearly pronounce every syllable, he whispered, Music! 
At other times, he felt the need to adopt an unconvincing American accent. Loving you is the natural thing to do, he drawled in sure to fall. Never mind, though. They'd win over Mike Smith with their humorous stage favourites. George, the least nervous of them all, steered them through a competent take on Joe Brown's The Sheik of Araby, accompanied by John and Paul's nudge-nudge interjections of Not off. The dry atmosphere of the room and the stone-faced Decker staff on the other side of the glass, less than three feet away, unnerved them even more. It was all over in less than an hour. The Beatles felt certain they'd done enough, not least because Mike Smith had already watched them perform at the Cavern on December the 13th. This was only a formality. They were bound to be signed now. Fame and fortune were just around the corner. The Beatles were very much of their time. I will present as much context for their statements as I can, but there will be language and views expressed that may not fit with modern sensitivities. But this is 1969. Until they invent the time machine, these words remain unchangeable. Good morning. Twenty-nine. Twenty-nine. Three, two, one. Can't operate these conditions, boy. You know, we're coming out. It's like, it's like that. We're like, we're striking. That's what it is. It's like a strike. And that's what we're going through now, really. Is that we've got to readjust to each other. You know, I've gone over so many songs. But I've got, like, my quantum of tunes for the next ten years or albums. I won't lie, I'm not too good. <laughs> the winter of discontent with the Beatles. Hello, and welcome to Winter of Discontent the podcast that takes a deep dive into the recordings of the Beatles sessions for the Get Back Project. My name is Nick. Join me now as we embark on this epic journey together. Episode 24 Welcome back to the afternoon of January 6th, 1969. The Beatles will be returning from lunch shortly after a trip around the Twickenham Studios lot looking for alternative locations. Today's episode will cover the discussions that follow that trip. As such, these are some of the more interesting conversations caught during these sessions. You'll have noticed the episodes getting longer. I try to keep each show covering one subject or theme where I can. Each day of rehearsal is broken up into sections so this is quite easy to do. This does mean that episode length is going to be pretty variable as we go on, but our last episode, number 23, was the longest yet. Let me know on the socials, Twitter, Instagram and the Facebook page what you think of the longer episodes. I appreciate there's a lot of information going on. A quick recommendation, a book this time, The Beatles, Apple and Me by Stephen Maltz, who served as an accountant for The Beatles between 1966 and 1969. He was instrumental in the formation of Apple Corps, and he's written a well-put-together and entertaining book about his time with the band. The opening chapter, when he has to inform George and Ringo that due to tax debt they are virtually bankrupt, is jaw-dropping. Well worth checking out. Before we start, here is the customary recap of episode 23. The tape starts midway through a bluesy kind of a jam. Some books and blogs describe this, and some previous blues jams, as an early version of For You Blue. 
I don't believe it is. For a start, it's in the wrong key. And it's as much for you blue as the Louis Louis style jam is an early version of Dig It. I'll accept that this traditional chord structure could have inspired George to write for you blue, but I'm yet to be convinced that what George is playing is a song yet. In the background, Mal and Ringo are discussing lyrical ideas for Octopus's Garden. Mal has a number of suggestions, most of which are puns. George asks Mal if someone is going to town, presumably Apple or EMI. Apparently a chauffeur called Joe will be in at lunchtime. George has the running order for Jackie Lomax's new album written out, and he passes this to Mal to get one presumes acetates made in that order. The PA is now switched on, so Paul starts improvising a rock and roll type song with the lines, you wear your women, you wear them out. This is the first of several lengthy jams. This one in particular is played through twice. It's notable that in the previous episode 22 and this one, it is actually John who tries to get the band back to rehearsing. This time, he tries to start I've Got a Feeling, but Paul continues with another verse of You Wear Your Women Out. John eventually steers the band into rehearsing I've Got a Feeling. The performance is a little ragged, John pausing to tune up in the intro and George still getting the descending riff wrong. But this is the first new song they've rehearsed so far today. The structure is established, so they move on. Paul makes a joke in reference to William Mann's 1963 article about Lennon McCartney and its reference to Aeolian cadences. Instead of rehearsing another song, Paul leads the band into another loose jam. This time with the lyrics, My Imagination. This again goes on for quite a while. During this jam, George makes use of an effect pedal called a wah face, which has a distortion circuit. This creates a sustained, distorted guitar sound that he appears to enjoy playing. John calls for Mal and is silent for a few minutes as he gets set up, apparently with a different amplifier. Now he too is playing with a distorted sound. Paul and George like the sound, and Paul relays Glyn John's opinion that he prefers the sound of smaller amps for the live show. John again, the only one leading the band into any kind of rehearsal, starts playing Don't Let Me Down. The tape cuts, but when it starts again the band are midway through a full band performance. As the song comes to a conclusion, John unusually takes a solo, then seemingly inspired, starts the song again. Another attempt at the solo dissolves into laughter, but John is happy with the arrangement of the song now. Another break in the tape, and we capture the band now midway through a version of One After 909. George has now switched the wah face pedal to its wah-wah setting. They mess up the solo for this, playing it over the wrong section of the song. Paul demonstrates to John where the solo should go, and they run through this section. George points out the wah face to Paul and its close relative, the fuzz face. This causes Paul to improvise a few lines, they call me fuzz face. John starts the one after 909 again, this time in the style of their aborted 1963 recording. George accompanies on wah-wah guitar. Paul mentions they should take a break and leaves George and John playing a brief blues together. George then slips seamlessly into a wah-wah version of Scotty Moore's solo from Elvis's That's Alright Mama. As John briefly busks Chuck Berry's 30 Days, George switches to another wah-wah pedal, plugging it in incorrectly and creating a screeching sound. 
Another break in the recording, but when it returns, we can still hear John and George noodling on the guitars, fiddling with the sound. John asks for some more tea, but our tea, not the studios. George attempts to teach John Hear Me Lord, the song they've ignored several times already today. He then offers a suggestion for the show, perhaps in reaction to their disinterest, of performing the song with the staple singers. But no mention of Billy Preston, you'll note. George runs through Hear Me Lord again, with the band offering a fairly rudimentary accompaniment. Then Paul interrupts Hear Me Lord once again, asking for a decision on whether they want to do the show on this soundstage or elsewhere. George states he doesn't like the sound of the space they were rehearsing in, and that they should have better microphones. Paul suggests they walk around the studio complex for an alternative location. George suggests doing it at EMI, but Paul is not in favour of that. Paul again mentions the little dubbing studio as an option. George and Paul then discuss perhaps lowering the ceiling in the space they're already working. George Martin arrives. He asks Paul why they want to discuss the staging now rather than at lunch. Paul says they're not really rehearsing at the moment anyway, just messing. Paul then tells them about the conversation he's had with Magic Alex where Alex suggested he could build an 8-track console for the project. They're not being one available in the country. He and Glyn think this is unlikely to work and so suggest two 4-track consoles connected together. Glyn is happy with that and therefore so is Paul. This is the setup they will use to make the recordings for the Let It Be album later in the month. Paul still wants a decision on using the studio space for the show. They discuss the logistics of building some structures inside the building. Dennis O'Dell is now involved and offers practical solutions to their ideas. He jokes with Ringo that, contrary to what he may believe, the sets for the Magic Christian are indeed being built on the other stages. After further discussion where to put the audience and a control booth, John offers his opinion in the form of a song. He actually is disagreeing here and wants to use the dubbing theatre for the show. After another break in recording, we can hear Michael Lindsay Hogg now present. George asks if they'll do any older material, though he does it in his own unique way, suggesting leaning on a lamppost. Paul obliges with the version which George accompanies him on. As Paul suggests they go and take a look at new sites, this inspires John to sing a song, Take a Look at Annie, which he claims he wrote for Ringo, though he could just have easily made it up on the spot. George says, here's a song, in response, and Ringo jokes, that you wrote. George responds by saying, Bob Dylan wrote it. I think now this is just George's quirky way of communicating, much like the leaning on a lamppost line. He doesn't really mean it's a genuine Bob Dylan tune. In any event, the song he sings Maureen seems to have a tune lifted wholesale from an Apple record, Thingamabob, written by Paul. As the rest of the Beatles and the crew head out to scout for locations, George is once again distracted by his guitar and wildwire effect. Eventually, he realises everybody is leaving and apologises, and the tape is turned off. It's now the afternoon. The scouting trip was followed by lunch, and we rejoin the Beatles and some of their team, deep in discussion about the concept of the show. What now follows is a recording of the discussion between the Beatles and the crew about the staging of the show. 
Frustratingly, the available tape misses the beginning and the end of the conversation. From the get-go, Yoko is a dominant voice, effectively speaking in John's place, if not on his behalf. John had already expressed an interest in using the dubbing theatre before they went on a scouting trip around the lot. The very fact that they're now all having this conversation would suggest that this venue wasn't suitable, and as such, perhaps John has no other suggestions. It would make sense with the conceptual artist on the set that they would turn to Yoko for any ideas she has. I've made an editorial decision to play the full conversation uninterrupted, and then I'll discuss what is being said afterwards. Stage, you know, that it's like an open air or something, and you're playing to the gods, you know, and to the stars, yeah. you know. Or, but, or even playing to people who have never seen you before. You see, I think, I think you're right. That, that any stage performance now of an ordinary sort, visually, will never be top because we all remember, I mean, and you better than I. Okay, so what's the use of an audience? The use of an audience is like, for you, for out of sheer charity, to play to them because you love them, or for you to collect ticket money, or... For, uh, to get a reaction between you for the sake of your show. Yes. But look, the thing is then, that's presuming that we're not enough for a show. Yeah, that does so presuppose bad, that know, there's not enough in the four of us. You've really got to pan off onto a postman. In a way, it suggests that. give you something when you're performing. It's good and bad. Right, yes, good, okay. But yes, but also, once you get up on a stage, I think once you get up... Well, that's well, the point about the audience, surely, is to give you something. Yes, well, yeah, like, like, like an actor on stage. Like bounce back, yeah. different audience. In it's like, but it'd just be all love to get a lot of cunts in there all day. But equally, once you get on a stage, you are performers. And you've got to have someone to do it to, of some sort. Either the camera or real people, I think. Well, empty chairs would be much more dramatic. I mean, well, we 20,000 yeah. empty looks chairs. Looks like they haven't bought any no, tickets. No, but you know, no, that's you know, you know, the thing is, no one's going to sort of think that, Mike. Yeah. You know, no one's going to think no they haven't bought any tickets. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> It'll just be, they've done it to 20,000 And also, you know, chairs. people are wondering, people are wondering, what kind of audience do you have now, you know? And it should be like vi- invisible, nameless, oh. everybody in the world, you know, instead of uh, some teenager or something. And they say, oh, so they still have this kind of teenage audience. Or if you have uh, costume people, you say, oh, those are the audience now. It's very dangerous, you know. Like uh, now you have uh, audience in every, every heart in the world, you mm-hmm. see. So well, it's, yeah, it's, like it's very bad to limit it. Yeah, but it's like that small bandstand in Hyde Park, that Regency bandstand, empty. It's like that, you know, it stands there every week and it's super. That, that empty bandstand, you know, the little one we, when we went to do the bit on the Great Race. Knock out that whole thing, empty. In Hyde Park. Empty. Yeah, I saw someone playing there once. Yeah. Um, that, that sounds, I think it's a very good idea. That sounds to me more, though, like five minutes rather than 15 minutes. I mean, I think it's a very interesting, because you're quite right, it is all. What we want to do with TAC is all over the world. I mean, it oughtn't yeah. to be any more just the kids who queue up outside the gate. It really ought to be the whole world. Yeah. And that yeah. was one of the things we tried to get on Jude. We tried to get all... Hey, look, we're doing two shows, aren't we? Yeah. We're doing two anyway, aren't we? We're, yes. we're taping yeah. the shows like on the Sunday and the Monday or something. Yeah. yeah. So, you so, I mean, we could... We could... Yes. It, it splits the idea a bit. Yeah. It means that we're going to do half of two ideas. Yeah. I think we better from the end we arrive I think in the end we arrive at one idea. Theoretically, of just doing one idea. It's like you choosing one photograph and going with that one. Yeah, or else we just... But we are doing two shows. I mean, and the one idea could be to play one night 
yeah. to silence, and the yeah. next night to those chairs filled. Yeah. But you see, then in the, the partly the documentary is playing in silence. I mean, I know it's not for an audience, but it's going to be the same thing. But I think we put, yeah, no, but we haven't we haven't just played. That. We haven't. Yeah. We've any number we've done at the moment. We've we've tried if we notice the camera on us to ignore it. Yes. Uh, the performance. See, also, I in a might funny be way. two. Ca it should be like two cameras or two audience or mm -hmm. two something. Yeah. But the, the people who are watching the TV doesn't want to see an audience unless the audience is terribly different, you know, that's like what I mean. everybody's that's right. but I think the audience could be different. formal where, mm. you know, queens also, and kings yeah, coming to see it. The, the, the only negative thought that's I have... True. I mean, you know, they're not the switching on to see the audience. Yeah. Right, right. No, but they're, either, they're switching on to see the Beatles, certainly, but they're like switching on to see either what the show is or how you react to this. I think your ideas are very good, but what I, what I think is that if you got up in front of an empty house and played, it makes you look too rich in the bad sense. In other words, what's the point? This is the negative aspect of that. What's the point of you getting up and playing for an empty house when, could be, when you could be giving people happiness with a full house, whatever kind of full house we well, nobody's decided. going to think that. They're going to think it's a very poetic situation. And they know that the Beatles are <laughs> I think rich. if you get rid of an audience... Yes, but I meant the bad side of rich. You, I mean, there's no point in doing a live performance. It's mm. like going into a recording studio and doing but one I think take. Well, unless it's because of the backgrounds, George, you see. Unless it's what that's, now we're going right the whole circle I mean, back to but the audience uh, is, to, is definitely going to give you something to, to Zabrata, which you wouldn't say. get otherwise. Yeah, no, but you right. know you're going right back to Zabrata because that what he's saying is right. Unless it's the background. I also think that uh, that, that, that an audience being used visually in the show isn't a bad thing because I think people are very interested in seeing how an audience would react to you, although they've seen it before. But I mean, no, no, yes, no. really, I think it's. Then it should be a really real scene. In other words, yes. you know, you have to announce in the newspaper saying that it's going to be a real alive show. Yeah, I think that'll happen anyway. For, and, you know, yeah. uh, the Beatles. Yeah. And uh, then the thing is, it'll be a crazy scene, like everybody queuing for it and everything. Yeah, and what you're, you're yes, I think that should be an Albert Hall scene then, if it's yeah, that. Yeah, right, right. Exactly, I feel that Yes, I'm not, not, I'm not against Albert Hall. I just think well, it slightly smells of a few years ago. Yeah. Of, I mean, yeah. you know, the Shea Stadium, there's wherever there has been. All right, yeah. so say anything, mm. and it will slightly smell like either a few years ago mm. or less than a few years mm. ago, because they topped it, you know. They topped exactly, it unless, it was, a, unless it was a location. Yeah, that is so strange. I'm, I'm not, not particularly supporting this idea, but it, it, is a certain, it is an idea that we can then say no to and go away from yeah. if we can top it, but it is... A location which is marvelous in itself by the sea. Mm. With but look, that has to be in England. An outdoor scene has to be in England because uh, we've decided we're not going abroad. I don't think it's practical right. to do it in England. It's too bloody. Right, cold. that's what I think. Yeah. But we have decided as a definite decision well, then that we're not going abroad, so we should yeah. sort of rule that out. Yeah. I mean, I you know, like we did. Yeah. I mean, it's not even to the two way. Oh, should we go abroad? We did. We like. We definitely said no to that. Literally in your back garden, Which would be much too freezing on your hands. Yeah, your back garden also looks like a little promotional film. Your house. It's too. It's But also, just the back garden looks like a little promo film we've all shot, as opposed to. Yeah. A Beatles television show. Yeah. So we do it in the other studio. Yeah. Yeah. With or without. You know what I mean? It looks like we set up a cam and it's it's um, a little promo. Yeah. Film. See, I think the thing is though. Okay. So we were we're all, you know, prepared to do it with an audience. Mm. But what Yoko says, right? You know that we 
you can't just have the same old audience or, totally or right. the same old scene totally so right. much. It's not even the same old If it was the same old audience and we were all naked when they came in, mm. then that would be a different scene, you know. Mm. Yeah. I think she's totally right about that. I mean, I, that's yeah, one of my big points. I mean, what can you do that's new with him? You see different faces. You've seen the postman. We've seen, the, you know, the turban. We, it's so, a no, drag, we shouldn't really know? try to do anything yeah. with the audience yeah, because the audience is the audience. Yeah. You know, it's them and they've the come in. It's us that's doing the show, you know. Then we ought to get that together. You know, that would be like half-assed idea. Or totally asked. But I think be nice. I think the thing is, then not really. You know, then then we've got to find. Unless it really worked, it would be frustrating. Because if I were in New York and if I watched Hey Jude, that program TV, you know, I would think. My interpretation would be that those people around them who were sort of climbing up and starting to sing mm. with them and all that were just hired people, you know. Mm. If I think that, then it's okay. Mm. But if I thought that they were true audience, you know, mm. then I think, oh, so now people don't think of Beatles as too much, you know. Because all the uh, image that everybody in the world has about Beatles is that once if there's an audience, they're going to be frantic and pulling their clothes mm. and tearing it away the and all that. The thing you know? is that we can mm. completely that create another image, create and preserve the image of your choice. Yes. So if we can just think of an image how we'd like to be and then we make it that one, mm. which could be, you know, anything. We could just be like a uh, mm. nightclub act or... You know, anything, just the smoochy low lights and about ten people. No, then you're a little cabaret act. Yeah. I think you should just do it with a large audience and not film them particularly, but use them as a sounding board. Oh, yeah, that's all. I mean, it, it, I was never going to shoot the audience particularly. It's just, A, it's, I think it's easier to work to an audience because they give you, it's like actors on stage, they give you this See, that's that's why I, that's why I thought like a ballroom. You know, if we did go right back right round the circle and did it purely like a dance. Mm. You know, like, come to the tower ballroom, there's a dance on. Yeah. You know, oh, incidentally, that we'll be the band that, you yeah. know. And then we go on and we play all the numbers and we play it like we play a dance without trying you to sort of announce anything. And just, you know, mm. there's a fast one, there's a slow one, and everyone, like, dances. And there's, you know, there might be a fight or there might be the kind of things that happened at dances, you know. Mm. Or it might be a very sedate, quiet mm. dance and there might be... Yeah. But just that idea, See, I don't know, I, you know... The, the, the essence of your ideas is simple, I think. I mean, what, what, what you're asking for is, is a really, really simple approach, which I think is right. But I'm not sure just have an audience dance around you is good that way. I mean, I, I don't think you are the, just a local band. I mean, they just See, well, that's the trouble now, yeah, that's the trouble. They, they wouldn't just... Because, like, the only time on TV it didn't work for you is when you went on doing Paperback Ride on Top of the Pops and they did just dance. Do you remember that? And they really didn't do very much, and that would look so crazy. I mean, it looked—I mean, it looked crazy for four minutes, but it would look a lunatic for long. I mean, it would have been the bad way. I mean, they really looked because it was so sedate, and, and you all were rather sedate. Saying, that it could day. never work the way he's saying because of what you are now. Yeah, that's you know, really, the, that's the trouble. Yeah. You see, what he's at, the essence yeah. of his idea is the simplest approach possible, which is the right. Which the yeah. essence is correct. Totally, yeah. totally. That's totally what I believe. Yeah. But that you're just not the local dance band. Yeah. Would that you were, but you're not. But you're just not. So that, that's going to be very hard to we achieve. Can discover something. Exactly. I was, I was thinking you I could put you onto someone. Long and all that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, and then t tails and a zither. See, but it's See that's it. We, it. For anything then like that, we're going to have to cre artificially create yeah. 
and a thing then. I mean, we are anyway in a film studio talking about create building yeah. around, you know. So we we're going to build something, so that uh, we shouldn't just try and build something like the Tower Ballroom because we could go to the Tower Ballroom. Yeah, and we could yes, that was that was one of the one of the reasons yeah. we started veering off in these ideas was when we were looking at locations that Friday after Christmas. Yeah, because and that all the locations look like four steps up from boutique. You know what I mean? Like four years ago, everybody was shooting in a boutique. Now it's a disused sawmill, or whatever it is. They just looked plastic real locations. They looked like you're going to go yeah, to a location because it looked because yeah, it looked. Yeah. So you know, just think of it in terms of somebody else. You know, like say Richard Burton. Okay, he was in playing in a regular theater, right? And the thing is, now if he wants to revive that situation, he has to have a, a fixed audience. We want we don't want to see Richard Burton, you know, sort of performing on a stage with a fixed audience. Mm. No matter what what kind of audience, it's going to look. But the thing is that what he is is a legend, you know. So that, uh, like, uh, seeing him in in his own private boat, or you know, or just seeing him shaving or something, even is much more dignified than seeing him perform to a fixed audience. Mm. Do you see mm. that point? That's why it's better to show you in you know your private home or George or something. All this is much better than fixed audience, you know. Perhaps we should do it to a different sort of audience. Perhaps we should do it mm. in the Royal Academy or the Tate Gallery. Mm. Mm. That makes much more sense, maybe. With nobody there oh, except I the pictures. <laughs> but I think once you get up to perform as the Beatles, you've got to be performing to someone, even if it's going to be this different kind of audience, because... But you don't use all, uh, human beings as audience. What do you replace them with, apart from animals? <laughs> I mean, well, nothing that was sustained for an hour. Dogs. I, think, think, or <laughs> I don't know. Men from the moon. You could do from men from the moon. <laughs> no, 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 but that's too... No, but too hard to... Even you could... Michael, that's what I remember that the audience that they're doing it for is sitting at home. That's the audience. Right, right. Yes, the will Well... Yeah, I mean, that's... I mean, certainly, yes. I mean, there is certainly just play straight out home. But I have a feeling that's not big enough. It's big, though. I mean, to see a private home of uh, Paul McCartney or George... But we could fit that in the documentary. like the Bridget thing, though. I know it didn't turn out nothing like it, but... Did you see that? Yeah. And uh, she takes the audience down to San Trope yeah, and yeah. sings a tune over her front gate. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and walking around the pool. Also, we can get those things in the, in the documentary. We can incorporate anything like that in the documentary. It's just... You're not running yet, are you? If you no. just get up as to perform, you've either got to be performing directly to the people at home or to an audience. Yeah. I think there's only two ways. But I mean, I mean, maybe it would work for the people at home. I don't think it's quite enough scope. I mean, I think the idea is good because we, we do we have to think about the audience because you are so riddled with audience. I mean, the audience is so much part of the first half of you musically, says the critic from the garden. You know what I mean? The audience is so much part of the whole mystique. In essence, Yoko's points are these. The idea of a show in front of a TV studio audience is mundane and predictable. Her conceptual idea of 2,000 or is it 20,000 empty seats is an artistic statement. It is to her mind a natural progression from the Hey Jude concept of the Beatles surrounded by people of all races and social classes. Now the empty chairs represent every man. 
Her initial suggestion, only partially heard, is for the Beatles to play some music outside alone, playing to the gods, as she puts it. In many ways, Yoko is on the same page as Michael Lindsay Hogg. After Shea Stadium and after the Our World broadcast and the massive success of Sgt Pepper and their even bigger achievement with the double album, the Beatles need to make a bigger statement. Her criticism of the Hey Jude promotional film is that the Beatles are presented as just like their audience, approachable, normal. She wants them to present their greatness on the screen, their opulence. Hence her suggestion of the Beatles being seen at home amongst the trappings of wealth, swimming pools, nice cars, big TV sets. In the 60s, such displays of wealth were seen as aspirational for the audience. The James Bond franchise was built on the glamour of travel to faraway exotic places, for instance. Michael, as I've stated, has a similar point of view to Yoko. He feels the Beatles need to make a big statement. But where Yoko feels the Beatles should transcend their audience, Michael believes the focus should be on the setting for their show. Ultimately, he is still hoping to convince the band to travel and have a dramatic backdrop for their performance. He sees Yoko's idea of playing to silence as just a repeat of the footage they've already shot of the Beatles rehearsing. And in that sense, he's right. The gimmicks suggested don't seem interesting enough to sustain a whole show. So he tries to compromise by suggesting perhaps each song have its own setting. Paul doesn't really have an idea of his own except for the band to go back to their roots and play ballrooms again. It's a curious retrograde step, but that's not something he'll forget. Later in the year, he'll suggest the same thing to John and force John's hand to announce that he wants to leave the band. Even after the Beatles break up, Paul will take his new band on the road to play one-night stands at university refectories and the like. It could be argued that Paul's instincts are correct. In 1969, the live concert will evolve into the format that it still has today. Bands would go from playing a brief half-hour as part of a package show to one-and-a-half, two-hour performances. And bands like the Rolling Stones and Led Zeppelin would exploit the medium to great acclaim and financial reward. Ballrooms is really Paul's default idea, but he'll happily listen to others. And he's siding with Yoko initially, countering both Michael's and George Martin's objections. The main obstacle to any progress in these talks is that the Beatles don't want to travel. So any venue they pick needs to be in England, which, as George Harrison points out, means it would be cold. It's interesting that Michael makes a reference to the Beatles on top of the Pops performing paperback writer. Only a few seconds of footage exist of that performance, courtesy of a fan who filmed his TV screen briefly. It's hard to work out from that what Michael means, but he uses it as an example of how out of time the Beatles were by then, looking strange surrounded by a few dancing teenagers. Paul's only real conceptual idea is jokingly to suggest they play naked, which I'm sure would appeal to Yoko though George would prefer that they stay clothed and the audience is naked. George Martin has a very practical approach, which it doesn't seem that either the Beatles or Michael or Yoko want to hear. He cuts through the concept of playing without an audience, stating there isn't any point in playing live without one. What Yoko doesn't really understand is the way an audience response can create an atmosphere in which the musicians give their best. Out of everyone present, he is the only one to mention the dubbing theatre as a venue. 
it would appear that everyone else was not too taken with the space. Dennis O'Dell as producer can organise big events. He would be in favour of playing in an amphitheatre, which Michael has only skirted briefly around mentioning. The site he reveals is called Sabratha in Libya. He does have some suggestions that might have been workable. When he says if they want to play in England, it might as well be in the back garden, this inspires Yoko to think of filming the Beatles at home. But his suggestion of playing in an art gallery is moving in the right kind of direction. One wonders if a collaboration between Dennis and Yoko could have generated a bold and original idea or two. These days, a creative team like this would be left alone to come up with bold ideas and then pitch them to the band. It didn't happen that way, but Yoko's quirky vision with Dennis as facilitator is an interesting thought. George Harrison isn't too keen to get close to an audience. His experiences on the Hey Jude video and in 1967 when he visited Golden Gate Park and was surrounded by hippie kids have put him off crowds. His remarks are harsh, but he's not yet aware that a new type of audience behaviour is evolving where large groups of people will actually listen to performances and clap respectfully. His joking conceptual idea is an audience of 2,000 ventriloquist dummies. It's notable that at this point, and despite his comments this morning, George is not against the idea of a show. Another point he makes to Yoko that is not acted upon is the idea of creating another new image for the Beatles, much like Sgt Pepper. It's a third way to look at the performance. The Beatles greater than their audience, playing for all. All the Beatles against a dramatic backdrop. Or this, the Beatles as a new persona, another conceptual band. Maybe he's thinking of the band. John doesn't contribute at all and Ringo only suggests something like a riverboat shuffle, which all of the skiffle bands in Liverpool would play. This is as much a back to their roots idea as Paul's. The other voices on the tape don't really contribute any ideas. The result of the conversation seems to be that nothing is firmly established. There have been some creative and practical ideas, but there is nothing that they can all agree on and no structure to how they move forward. The tape ends before the discussion concludes, so one has to presume they simply opt to remain where they are for now. The unsuitability of the dubbing theatre seems to have wrong-footed the band, and they are now lacking a plan B. When the tape restarts, the Beatles have moved to the performance area, but once again Paul is procrastinating, positioning himself behind Ringo's drum kit and starting another jam. The tea towels on Ringo's kit significantly dampen the sound. George joins in back on the Wawa pedal for a blues type instrumental. You can just about hear John still with his distorted guitar tone.
A little bit of dialogue between Paul and John, but it's difficult to hear. Another jam, John manages to drive his guitar to feedback. George starts playing The Tracks of My Tears, a hit for Smokey Robinson. Tracks of My Tears is the 1965 hit for The Miracles, written by singer Smokey Robinson, bass vocalist Pete Moore and guitarist Marv Tarplin, and released on Motown's Tamla label. The Beatles were fans of The Miracles, covering their song You Really Got A Hold On Me for 1963's With The Beatles album. Tracks of My Tears wouldn't actually chart in Britain until the summer of 1969, so The Beatles would have only encountered it during one of their visits to the US. PA appears to be off. None of the conversations are intelligible, which is frustrating. Michael Lindsay Hogg is definitely in the background and we presume Ringo is banging the tambourine as Paul is on the drums. through an instrumental version of Dizzy Miss Lizzie. Some guitar dueling between John and George. Oh, 
drum solo in from Paul sounds quite a lot like what Ringo will be doing on Abbey Road. Dizzy Miss Lizzie was written and recorded by Larry Williams in 1958. The Beatles recorded cover versions of this song and its B-side Slow Down in the mid-60s. Dizzy Miss Lizzie was performed on stage during the Beatles' 1965 tour and John will perform it again later this year with the Plastic Ono Band at the Toronto Peace Festival. John begins playing the riff to Money That's What I Want. It's astonishing no one has turned on the PA. John's voice is barely audible. Money That's What I Want, another record released on the Tamla label, written by its founder Berry Gordy and Janie Bradford, recorded by Barrett Strong in 1959. It has the honour of being the first Motown hit record. The Beatles recorded their cover of this song in 1963 and John, along with the Plastic Ono Band, performed Money Live in Toronto later this year. the drums as John begins Fools Like Me, a 1959 Jerry Lee Lewis song complete with solo Paul is back on bass, Ringo on drums Perkins country tune they used to do. Then they begin Sure to Fall. Paul prompts John to the next line.
Sure to Fall is a Carl Perkins original that the Beatles not only recorded four times for BBC Radio, but also captured on tape at their audition for Decca Records in January 1962. Perkins' version dates from 1956 and was the follow-up to Blue Suede Shoes. The Beatles had been performing the song since 1961. Their final BBC performance of the song was the 31st of March 1964. Following on in the Carl Perkins theme, George starts right string wrong yo-yo. Right String Wrong Yo-Yo appeared on Carl Perkins' 1957 release, Dance Album. George Harrison, who would have been 14 at the time, was by far the biggest Perkins fan, hence his knowing these deep cuts from the artist's catalogue. Much of George's rockabilly-inspired guitar style during the early Beatles career, up to Rubber Soul, was formed by studying the intricate guitar work of Perkins from his records such as this. Tape cuts. When the tape starts again, the Beatles will be working on Don't Let Me Down and we'll get an insight into how they arrange that song. But until then, we'll leave it for now. And that's it. Thanks for listening. Let me know what you think on our Facebook page and our Instagram, all titled Winter of Discontent Pod. Please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. It really helps other people find us. You can also email on winterofdiscontentpod at gmail.com. Thanks again and goodbye for now.